Well, as always, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see each of you here this morning. I hope that that hymn really resonates within your soul. I hope the fact that Jesus Christ not only loves sinners, but that Jesus Christ loves each of you as sinners. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. I must admit, I find this the most compelling of all reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. There are many reasons to believe in the one whom God has sent on your behalf. There are many good and solid evidences that we see, not only in scripture, but also in human history. But this great fact that Jesus Christ died for me, compels me, moves me, overwhelms me at times. And I hope and I pray that that experience is yours as well. Jesus Christ died for you. He will hold you fast. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, of which we proclaim and hold fast. May God bless you in that. What I'd like to ask you to do this morning is to take your Bibles, and we're going to turn back to the book of Revelation. We've finished the uh, series that we did on the uh, seven churches, uh, or uh, to the seven letters to the seven churches. And what I want to do in the, and this week and next week at least is to continue to consider uh, uh, these next two chapters in the book of Revelation. We're going to be uh, approaching this in some, somewhat of a different manner than we have when we were looking at the letters to the churches. We're going to look here today at the entirety of, uh, of Revelation chapter 4. And what I want to do is, by the grace of God, I want to set before you uh, not only the details that we see here in Revelation chapter 4, a number of details. We are confronted with a vision. We are confronted with numbers. We are confronted with uh, these creatures that we see. And we will touch on those things, but I'll not get into that in any detail. What I hope to do here this morning is to set before you what is the focus of that fourth chapter. And the focus of that fourth chapter is the worship of God Almighty. There are two primary things that we see in this fourth chapter. Number one, we will see the glory of God in heaven. And number two, we will see the worship of God described. And so we're going to take a look at each of those things. But before, again, we get into the, the particulars here this morning, let's go back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. And I'll read the entire chapter to you. Revelation chapter 4. Again, please hear the word of God. After this I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, 
And the third beast had a face of him as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rushed not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They, were, they are and were created." Well, again, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture, and in a very real way, it takes us into heaven itself. And it gives to us, again, what we might call the, 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 the focus of what goes on in heaven. And I would suggest to you by what we see here, we see two primary things. There are a lot of details that have to be worked through to some extent. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. But the two primary things that we see is, again, essentially this. We see the glory of God described. I'm sorry, we see the glory of God, God declared and then the worship of God described. And as I said before, what I want to do is I want to work through this passage of Scripture with that in mind. But before we do that, I want to review with you what we've already covered so far in this book of Revelation. You know that we've covered the seven letters to the seven churches. And I hope you've seen and understand in that series that we did is that those churches were actual historical churches but also that those churches represent characteristics and features that are oftentimes found in churches throughout any period in church history. Sometimes these churches are looked at in such a way as to see each church representing a particular time or period within the history of the church. I don't think that that's really the best way to take a look at those seven churches. Rather, we should see those churches as seven actual churches that existed at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, obviously, but also that those seven churches have characteristics that are true of any church at any time throughout the history of the, of the, of the church. And so that there are churches that are on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are churches that are being persecuted. There are churches that are lukewarm. And in much the same way as there are churches with these characteristics, you might remember that I tried to bring out the point that there are individual believers with these same kind of qualities or characteristics. There are believers right now who are suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ, and he has his eye upon them. There are believers right now who are in that place of tension between whether or not they will submit to ultimate uh, human authority or whether they will submit to the authority of Christ. There are those individual Christians that are struggling with lukewarmness and Jesus Christ is calling them away from their lukewarmness and to a real zeal for, for his cause. And so all these things we, we've seen there in that study of the seven churches. As we looked at the seven churches again, there were things that were, that were commended and those things Christ encouraged the church to hold fast. There are those things that Christ was condemning and Christ was calling the churches to repent of those things. It's the same thing today, not only for churches in general, but for you and me as well. There are things that Christ might see within our lives. He calls us to repent of those things. Sin always, again, occasions a call for repentance. And there are things, again, that you might be doing that are very consistent with your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is calling you to hold fast to those things. But to everyone, to every church, Christ says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
And you've heard me say this over and over again in that series. What does Christ, what does the Spirit say to the church? The Spirit says to the church what is written in the Word of God. And so it is incumbent upon this church, it's incumbent upon every church, to give itself over to obedience to the Word of God. Well, what I want to do here this morning, as I said before, I want to move on now to chapter 4. And in our study of chapter 4, we will take a, a different approach. We're not going to look at the details of, uh, of chapter 4. We'll touch upon them because they will be important for your overall understanding of the book of Revelation. But we're not going to bog down in them, if I can put it that way. We're not going to get overly concerned with what the eyes that attend the four beasts, what, the, what that's all about. We're not going to take a look too much at trying to understand uh, the colors that we see there in heaven, although we'll mention that. What I want to do is I want to move to the primary focus of this fourth chapter. And the primary focus of this fourth chapter is that all of the created order join together in the worship of God Almighty. Those four beasts, which I understand to be angelic beings, and I'll speak about that shortly, those four beasts worship God. The 24 elders, which I understand to be representative of redeemed humanity, join their voices in worship of God. And they worship Him in such a way as, as that we see on display all of God's glorious attributes and all of God's saving actions. We see in this passage of Scripture a sense in which God is being worshipped and glorified because He has created all things for His pleasure. What a wonderful thing to think about. And what I would say to you is this. If the focus of heaven is on the worship of God for who He is and what He has done, ought not that to be the focus of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth? And as a matter of fact, what I would say to you is that this becomes very, very clear in a number of ways. And the first thing that I want to kind of set before you by way of just kind of capturing this fourth chapter, I would suggest the following proposition, that in heaven, the glory of God dominates everything and the worship of God occupies every living being. I'm going to say that again. The glory of God dominates everything. You may not have noticed this, but when we read through that fourth chapter, what we saw was a repetition of the concept of God on the throne. Over and over again, I believe at least seven times, the reference there is to God on the throne. In 11 verses, God is, is, is presented as on the throne. And we're seeing, again, something by way of his majesty. The other thing I want you to see is that not only does the glory of God dominate this fourth chapter, I also want you to see that the worship of God, if I can say it this way, is the business of heaven. Every living being, whether angelic or human, are joined together in the worship of God. And this becomes very, very significant. Why is this significant for us? Well, it's significant, I would suggest to you, for this reason. You've just heard me explain my, my understanding of the seven churches of Revelation, that it's not just a, an unfolding of the history of the church in various periods of time, but rather it's that which is taking place in churches throughout the world and throughout, and throughout church history. And there are times where the people of God are suffering greatly. There are times when the people of God are challenged in many ways. But what I want you to also see from this fourth chapter, and we're going to see it from the fifth chapter as well, while all that is going on in the life of the church, there is something constant that is happening in heaven. And that is the worship of God Almighty. And I want that to be in one sense like your point of reference. 
So that whatever you find find yourself by way of a circumstance or situation that may parallel what we saw in those seven churches, the one constant that remains is the worship of God by every created uh, uh, being, uh, uh, redeemed humanity and angelic being. And I want you to see that. I want that to be your frame of reference as you go through uh, through life. And so in this passage of scripture, again, I repeat to you that proposition or that doctrine in heaven. The glory of God is the is that which dominates everything and the worship of God occupies every living being. Now, again, the glory of God and the worship of God. What a way to see heaven. Do you think of heaven that way? We oftentimes and there's nothing wrong with this. We think of heaven of being reunited with our loved ones. Sometimes we think of heaven by way of the external uh, beauty and glory that the scriptures give to us. But when all is said and done, really what concerns heaven is the glory of God and the worship of God. And as we, again, look to Revelation 4, we'll see this again over and over again manifested. And I would suggest this to you, that if the glory of God and the worship of God are that which is primary in heaven, should it not be that which is primary for the church of Jesus Christ? That the primary thing that we are concerned with as a congregation is the glory of God. Yes, we are concerned with the good of each and every member in this church. Yes, we are concerned, again, to witness for Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. But in this place, when we come together, our primary concern is for the glory of God and the worship of God. And what's interesting is that in a very real sense, this is very consistent with what the the scriptures teach by way of what the Christian life should look like. Your life and my life should be bound up in the glory of God and in the worship of God. Let me suggest a couple of passages that would bring this out. Again, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he taught us to pray, what does he say there in Matthew chapter 6? Thy will be done, thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. There is a sense in which the church of Jesus Christ and the individual Christian desires to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we see there in that fourth chapter. When we see the four living beings, these angels, they are servicing, they are worshiping, they are working on behalf of God. You and I, as the church of Jesus Christ here in this world today, ought to have that same concern. That passage of scripture that we often read, El made mention of it by way of the confession of our sin, uh, that we, that's part of our, uh, part of our uh, normal worship service, is taken from Psalm 57, verse 5. And it captures that idea of both the glory of God and the worship of God. Psalm 57, verse 5 says this, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's the combination of the glory of God and the worship of God. As a matter of fact, if you work through that 57th Psalm, you'll come down uh, to the second part, verses 7 through 11, and read like, like this. It's a beautiful psalm, really. It reads as follows. My heart is fixed. My heart is fixed. The psalmist repeats it. My heart is fixed. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. The refrain is repeated. Let thy glory be over all the earth. The glory of God and the worship of God, the business of heaven, the glory of God and the worship of God, the business of the church. 
And so in this passage of scripture, I want you to see that no matter where we may be, by way of, uh, by way of the, the pictures and, the, and, and, and what the seven churches represent in the book of Revelation, no matter where we may be, no matter where you may be in life, this constant remains the glory of God and the worship of God. And this passage of scripture then sets before us in a very clear fashion these two ideas. The glory of God dominates everything in heaven and the worship of God occupies everyone in heaven. Shouldn't that therefore be the controlling theme of our congregation? And should not that be the controlling theme of our individual lives? And so again, heaven, in heaven, the glory of God dominates everything and the worship of God occupies every living being. Now, in order to handle this passage of Scripture, what I'll do is I'll just break it down into two uh, very basic parts. Uh, number one, we're going to see the glory of God displayed in verses 1 through 7. And then number two, we're going to see the, the worship of God described. The glory of God displayed in the worship of God described. Now, we have to admit, as we, as, as we come in now to this fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, we're beginning to get... Uh, into that section of the book of Revelation where we have to deal with symbols and symbolism and what this means and what that means. And I hope you won't be too disappointed if I say to you that I'm not going to spend an excessive amount of time on some of those details. If I can say this to you, if I can suggest this to you, most of you probably have a very good and useful study Bibles that will get into a lot of the details as to how some of the symbols are explained. And what I want to do is I don't want to ignore the symbols. They're there for a reason. They do convey meaningful truth to us. But let me say this. If you and I read Revelation chapter 4 and we get bogged down in what the Sardin stone means, or we get bogged down on why there are six wings mentioned in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, and only four wings on angels mentioned in Ezekiel, if we get bogged down on what those particular eyes mean, and we miss the overall worship of God Almighty, do you see how, 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 how seriously flawed we are in handling the Scripture? These things are all given to set the platform in order that we might worship God aright. And the worship that we see here is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's that again, which, uh, and not only do we see the worship of God described, I would suggest to you that we learn much about the nature of worship in this fourth chapter. And so I hope, by the, again, by the grace of God, to bring all this to you. So again, let's take a look at this idea of the glory of God displayed. Look there again with me in chapter uh, 4, verses uh, 1 and following. Uh, John says this, And after this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things that must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Let's stop there. Well, this passage of scripture in Revelation chapter 4, again, if you're in any way familiar with expositions of, uh, of the book of Revelation that are popular in our day, uh, many times uh, uh, this passage of scripture is used uh, to, to set before us uh, what's known as the uh, doctrine, which is known as the rapture of the church. And while I believe in the rapture of the church, it's kind of interesting, I, I don't really see that doctrine in this particular verse. 
I think that while the church of Jesus Christ has given great promises to escape the wrath that is to come, and we're going to see, I think we're going to see, I don't know how far we're going to go in our study in the, Revela- in, in the book of Revelation, but if we get to chapter 6, we're going to see particularly in the 6th chapter through the 19th chapter, you do have the description of great tribulation. And I do think that there are particular promises that God has made to his people to exempt them from that hour of great trial and tribulation. But many have looked at this verse and said when when John is taken up to heaven by way of this this spiritual experience that he has, it pictures the rapture of the church. Let me give you uh, some, uh, let me give you a a comment uh, by a gentleman who is a very, uh, a very, uh, 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 an excellent proponent of the, um, of the doctrine of the rapture of the church. And let me just see if I can find it. Give me a second just to get back on track with my notes here. Uh, this gentleman was a, was a very significant uh, scholar uh, in, the, in the latter part, the, the mid to latter part of the 20th century. Uh, he was very, uh, very uh, uh, foundational in the, uh, in, the, in, in the establishment and then the development of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. A gentleman, many, some of you may know his name uh, by the name of John Walvoord. Uh, again, he was a great defender of the doctrine of the rapture of the church. He says this uh, in his commentary on John, which I would recommend to you. He says this, The invitation to John to come up hither is so similar to that which the church anticipates at the rapture that many have connected the two expressions. It is clear from the context that this is not an explicit reference to the rapture of the church, as John was not actually translated. In fact, he was still in his natural body on the island of Patmos, and he was translated into the scenes of heaven only temporarily. And I have the following. I, I write the following. I concur with uh, with uh, with Walford here. In fact, while there may be a chronology present in this chapter, uh, which is yet future to the 21st century that we are living in, I am I am going to present chapters four and five from the perspective of the description of the activity in heaven that has been taking place since the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and that will be taking place and that is taking place in heaven right now and that will be taking place until he returns in Revelation 19. Do you understand what I'm saying? That this, this, this emphasis in Revelation chapter 4 is not just something that is explaining to us a particular chronology. Again, stop and think of the picture. The seven churches in Revelation, certain periods of time, the last period in time is the church at Laodicea. After the church of Laodicea, after the uh, dealings with the church of Laodicea, the rapture in chapter four, verse one, and then everything takes place by way of a chronology. I'm taking it something of a different view. I'm taking a look at the fact that what we see in chapters four and five is a worship that has been taking place since the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and will take place until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in judgment in Revelation chapter 19. Why am I bringing these things out? Because I do not, number one, I believe the scripture leads me in this direction, but number two, I do not want you to forget that in all your trials and difficulties and ups and downs, God is still worthy to be praised and worshiped. That's exactly what is going on in heaven right now. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ should be doing as well. And so again, with all this in mind, as I said before, we'll be working through this passage of scripture. Now, it is kind of interesting, again, that we see uh, the the Apostle John once again being, I believe, addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have there in verse 1, 
um, verse one, where he says, after these things, I heard, I heard a voice in heaven. The door was open in heaven and I heard a voice, which I heard was, was, was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I'm pretty convinced, and there's a, a kind of a consensus on this, that uh, many believe that this is actually a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the Apostle John. And again, I concur with that. I believe that if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, you see the same terminology being used to describe how the Lord Jesus Christ is interacting with the Apostle John. In a sense, John is given another vision as to what is happening and what is about to happen. And it's interesting because what we see here as John has this glimpse of heaven is that we see, as I said before, the glory of God described in a number of ways. As I said before, what we see dominating John's vision is the reality of God on his throne. Presented over and over again in these 11 verses, probably about seven times, maybe even more than that as you look all the way through. And so the emphasis is on God on his throne. The other thing that's got a very interesting is, that this is, is the description that we have of God's glory, not so much, if I can say it this way, of his person. We don't, see an, we don't see the image of a person here on the throne. We just see displays of glory, and that's very, very significant. Again, we have this, uh, uh, the voice says, come up hither, uh, and John in, in the spirit is taken into heaven. And what, as I said before, what John sees is this glory of God. I think it's interesting because since our Lord Jesus Christ is conducting John at this point, and since John is seeing the glory of God, we would probably have to say that it's a reference to the glory of the Father. But please understand and don't misunderstand that the glory of God in a very real sense is, is that which encompasses the glory of Christ as well. Do you remember what Jesus Christ said in John chapter 17 when he says, And now, Father, glorify me with thine own self with the glory I had with thee before the world was? There is a sharing in that glory and that display of glory. While we may see it primarily focused on the person of the Father, it never would be excluded from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ nor of the Holy Spirit as well. And we're going to find a reference to the Holy Spirit in this passage as well. Matter of fact, this, this, this passage of scripture reminds us of, um, of, uh, of what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. And you remember that great passage in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory of his train filled the temple. And again, again Isaiah says he's, he's undone. And do you remember how the apostle John, in the 12th chapter of his gospel, interprets that experience? John says that that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ in that sixth chapter. And so what you see here is a glory that's attendant to the person of Christ as well as that to the Father. And so this description of the glory of God surrounds the triune God, and it's that ultimately what we are seeing here. Now, as I said before, the, 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 the references to the throne of God are, are, again, numerous in this passage of Scripture. The other thing that's interesting about the throne and its dominant place within the view of John is that much of the activity that's taken place in heaven all is given to us in reference to the throne itself. 
so that we would have this. We would have the one who is sitting on the throne. That's again, God. We have the activity round about the throne. And that is again, the angels. We have that which is happening that is, that is proceeding from out of the throne. We have the reference again to the things that are happening before the throne. So everything in this fourth chapter is revolving around God on the throne. The passage, as I said before, reminds us of Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. We know the passage here in Isaiah 6. Again, how similar it is. Uh, verse 2 of Isaiah 6, And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his faith, face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The same thing we see here in this fourth chapter. Ezekiel has that very, uh, that very uh, arresting uh, image of the glory of God there in Ezekiel chapter 1. You're familiar with it, I'm sure, but let me just read a couple of verses from Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel writes this concerning the vision that he saw. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above it. And I saw as the color of amber, and as the appearance of fire round about within, and the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward. And I saw, as it were, the appearance of a fire, and it had a brightness round about, and the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness round about, and this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one that spake. All I'm trying to bring out to you here is this, is that what John is seeing is consistent with what we have seen in Scripture by way of, these, of this unfolding of the nature of heaven. And what we're dealing with are the limitations of human expression. Yes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but with the limitations by way of capacity of expression. And this is why we have this, this kind of expre these expressions being given to us that, that it was like this and it was like that. And there was this color and there was that color and that was happening and this is happening. And what they're trying to do is with the limitations of human speech and language, although fully capable because of the, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Spirit. They are trying to, if I can say it this way, they are trying to describe that which is ultimately indescribable in its fullest sense. But this is what we have here. And so this is what John sees. Well, let me say this. I can go on even further. I, I have a feeling that this, these details are already becoming a little bit burdensome to you. Let me just mention a few more details before we move on, I think, to what's really essential for us to see. Look what we see here in verses uh, 3 and following. Um, of this fourth chapter. John writes this, uh, and round about the throne there were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now what we're seeing here, again, I believe when we have this reference to the twenty-four elders, I'm I believe I'm pretty much convinced that this is a this is a reference to a representative group of of redeemed humanity. Many make the the, the case that we have a reference to, of the twelve uh, of the twelve tribes of the Old Testament and of the twelve apostles in the New Testament. That indeed that indeed may be the case. But I think ultimately what we see here is a reference to redeemed humanity. There are reasons for that. 
This, 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 this group, this 24 elders, they have these robes uh, that are given to them. They have these crowns. And all of this refers to both the work and the effect of redemption that Jesus Christ works within the soul. So we have that reference there. We have the reference, that, and again, it's somewhat unusual, that reference to the seven spirits of God. Well, what's that a reference to? And again, as we saw in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, the Holy Spirit is described in the same way. He's referred to as the seven spirits of God. And so what we have here in heaven, not unsurprisingly, is a reference and a mention and an identification of the Holy Spirit of God there in heaven as well, ministering. It goes on here in verses uh, in, in, in verses uh, uh, six and following. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like on the crystal. And in the midst of the throne, round about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Well, here we have again another another description of what heaven is, the sea of glass. And, and many have referred this to corresponding to the brazen labor that was before the altar in the tabernacle and in the temple where sins were uh, ceremonially, ceremoniously uh, washed away. And all of these things, again, are just images and pictures. But really, as I said before, if we bog down on these things, it becomes, I don't want to say tedious, but you have to have a mindset ready to get into that kind of detail. The other thing I would just want you to see here is this, again, the reference to the four living creatures, as your newer translations may say, or what the King James says here, the four beasts, again, around, around about the throne, and they are described as, having, as being full of eyes before and behind. Now, just one more point of interest that may catch your attention, that these four beasts are, are normally understood to be angelic beings. There's good reason for it. We see the reference to four cherub in, uh, in, in, in Ezekiel. We have the reference to uh, the vision in Isaiah, where the angels, again, are saying the same thing that these four beasts are saying. So I think all that leads us in the direction of saying that these are angelic beings, and it would make it would be very consistent with what we know of heaven, that God is the object of worship, both of angelic beings and of redeemed humanity. It is interesting, however, that some older commentators, this is, uh, uh, it's not, you don't come across it in newer commentators today, older commentators said that these four beasts were representative, not of angels, but rather of ministers. And that as the angels had certain characteristics, that of a lion, that of a beast, uh, that of a bird, that, the, that those characteristics that are, that are kind of uh, symbolic there should be that which marks a minister of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, the idea of the, uh, of, the, of the lion having courage for Christ, the idea of an ox being willing to serve for Christ, uh, the idea of having eyes uh, full, full of eyes, the face of a man and having eyes, uh, the, the, the ability to, to interact with, 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 with men and women of, of like precious faith and, 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 and like weaknesses, and then the, uh, the, the, the wings is, is an eagle, swift to do the will of God. As interesting as that is, no less a commentator than Matthew Henry points to that uh, explanation, I do believe that it's better to see it as a reference to angelic beings. And so what we have here in this passage of scripture, as John gives to us a description of the glory of God, we have here a reference again to both redeemed humanity and also to angels serving God Almighty. Well, 
so much for what John saw and so much for an explanation of some of these details. What I want to do now is I want to move on to not, not only the glory of God described, but now I want you to see the worship, or, the, or I'm sorry, the glory of God declared. I want you to now see the glory of God, uh, the worship of God described, the worship of God described. And the reason why I talk about the worship of God being described is because from verses 8 through 11, whatever we have by way of the symbolism of the creatures, of the stones, of the colors, of the, uh, of, of the arrangements of, of heaven, everything is directed ultimately to God being worshipped. And that's exactly what we see here in, this, uh, in verses 8 through 11. Notice again what uh, John writes. And the four beasts, uh, each, had, each, each of them had six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and which is and which is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the throne who liveth forever and ever, and we'll stop right there. The first thing I want you to see here is that these angelic creatures are involved in giving honor and glory. They are involved in the worship of God. And it's very interesting to see the things that they mark for is what God is to be worshipped for. He is to be worshipped for his majesty as he is pictured over and over again in this fourth chapter as sitting upon his throne. He is to be worshipped because of his glory. Glory, as is mentioned in verses 3 and in verse 11. He's to, be met, he's to be worshipped because of his holiness, which is again mentioned there in verse, uh, in, in verse uh, I believe there in, in, in verse 8. He is uh, twice, at least twice, his eternality, his eternal nature is set forth as an object of worship. His omnipotence is mentioned in verse 11. And what I find particularly arresting is the fact, at least in the King James, that what we see is that these angels and redeemed humanity are worshipping God because he has created all things for his pleasure. That becomes, in my understanding, operative as to what and how we worship God. As all things were made for the pleasure of God, so all things we do ought to redound to the pleasure of God, or ought to be aimed at the pleasure of God. Think of that. All things made for the pleasure of God. Your, your very being, your very person was made by way of God's pleasure and for His pleasure. The very gifts that God has given to you by way, of, by way of physical abilities and intellectual abilities are all for the pleasure of God. Your time that God has given to you in a day and in a week and in a month is all designed ultimately for the pleasure of God. Oh, will you, will I, will we direct our lives in that fashion? And so this idea of the good pleasure of his will referred to in verse 11 it's kind of interesting, as I said there, uh, it's the King James really that only brings this out, that little expression, and for thy pleasure were they created. Our newer translations say something along these lines, and for thy will or by thy will were they created. And the reason why the King James writers uh, uh, brought in the concept of pleasure here is because that Greek word that Jews there can oftentimes have the idea not just of a will, but of the pleasure of someone's will. That's why we read there in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning that, there is a, that, there, that our salvation, our redemption comes about through the good pleasure of his will. And so, and so what God is being worshipped for, if we can say it this way, is for the excellency of his will. For that pleasure that God has in all things that he has created. And you and I, by way of our worship, we can frame our lives in such a way as to bring about that same kind of worship that is focused on the pleasure of God Almighty. And so those six reasons there are that we see here for the worship of God. 
The other thing I would ask you to observe, and again, this is not prominent, but I think there's a point here that can be made, is that we see, again, the two groups worshiping. And the two groups have something of a, of, of, of a distinction in their emphasis. It's not different, but there's a little distinction. Both groups are worshiping God for who he is. In their worship, they are describing the things that, are, that, that reveal or make known the nature of God. But the group of the 24 elders redeemed humanity, they give a point of emphasis to the created works of God and even the created works of God by way of, by way of explicit mention. And I would say the work of redemption implicitly when they speak about God's good pleasure. Let me see if I can bring this out to you. The first thing I would notice to you again is that we see the, the worship of the beast in verses of four through, uh, I'm sorry, in verses eight through nine. And notice what we have there in the passage. Again, um, they, were, uh, they were full of eyes and they rest not, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. Have you noticed now the three characteristics or the three attributes that are set before our attention? We have the holiness of God mentioned. We have the sovereignty of God mentioned, Lord God Almighty. We have the eternality of God mentioned, which was, which is, and which is to come. And so these three things comprise the basis for which worship, for which God is being worshipped. And that's why I said in this passage of Scripture, not only is the glory of God de uh, uh, declared, but, but the worship of God is described. And so when you and I come together with an awareness of who God is, that fills in much by way of what worship is. And so again, you have this emphasis on the very nature of God by way of these angelic creatures. Come down now to verses uh, 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 9 and, and 10, and I want you to see something that's interesting by way of a response or an interaction. Now, not so much between the created beings, whether angelic or redeemed humanity, but between the angelic beings and redeemed humanity. Look what we have here in verse 9 now. I'm sorry, look, look here. Uh, okay, we'll start in verse 9. Notice what we have here in verse 9. And, and notice the time reference here. Verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks, look here now at, 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 at verse 10, when, they, when the beasts give thanks, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat upon the throne. This is a beautiful picture. Because what you have here is you have these angelic beings declaring the glory of God by way of his attributes and by way of his nature. And when God's glory is declared, redeemed humanity in heaven bow down. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? And whenever again these, these great realities of God are set before, before us, it ought to affect our hearts. It ought to move us in humility, like, the, like, like we see here in this, uh, in this 11th verse. Thou art worthy, O God. Oh, how small we become when our hearts are rightly engaged in worship. How insignificant our greatest, uh, our greatest endeavors may be when compared to God Almighty. And so these things, again, are, are absolutely essential for us to understand what the nature of worship looks like. And so here in this passage of scripture, these angelic beings, while they are, while they are emphasizing primarily what we might say the nature of God, the four and twenty elders not only emphasize the nature of God, but they emphasize something of his works as well. Look now again at verse 10 and 11. 
and the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So many things have to, have to be touched on here. But the first thing I just want to remind you of again, when the nature of God is declared, his holiness, his sovereignty, his eternality, the response of redeemed humanity is to fall down and worship. Do, do, these, do, the, do the truths of God's nature move you in that direction? Does knowing more about the, the nature of God affect the soul? Are you a different person for having known something about God today than what you were yesterday? Does the reality of who God is affect the way that you live tomorrow? It must. If not, we're doing nothing that is consistent with redeemed humanity. I think it's, uh, it, it, this is not original to me, but uh, I think it was, again, Matthew Henry when he was talking about these four living beasts crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now, again, this is found, this refrain is found twice in the scripture. Again, once there in, in Isaiah chapter 6 and again, uh, and, and again here. And I think what's interesting is that uh, what, uh, what, what Matthew Henry is bringing out, that if these four living beasts are... Our, our, our ministers, that it should be the duty and the responsibility of ministers to always set before the people of God the holiness of God. It's a, it's a wonderful picture. And I think if we consider the, the, the ministry of angels, we can, we can say the same thing. And there is a sense in which this is the, again, you've heard this before, that this is the only, this is the only attribute of God which is brought together in such a short space that is repeated over this, these three times. All of God's attributes are repeated some way, somehow in Scripture. But when holiness is mentioned, it's brought together in this short span. And so again, this idea that God's holiness in a very real way. And we can't say that one attribute is greater than the other. It would be a mishandling of the biblical revelation of what the attributes of God are. There is a perfect harmony in the nature of God. All of God's attributes are, are in perfect, harmonious uh, balance in reality. But, but we cannot turn a blind eye to this fact that holiness seems to have this, this aspect to it that angels must repeat it three times, twice in Scripture. And so God's holiness is that which is emphasized here. And as I said before, I love the fact that when the holiness of God is mentioned, the, 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 the four and twenty elders, they fall down. But did you notice what they do as well? Their act of worship, their act of worship is a little different. In one sense, we might say this. The angels give glory and honor, we might say. The re redeemed humanity gives its crowns to, to, to God on the throne. Notice again what we have here. The four and twenty elders fall down before him on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before his throne, saying a number of things I want you to see here. Number, number one, these two are, are recognizing the, the eternality of God. God is worshipped because he is eternal. He is the great sum and substance of everything. And that's why the soul is always at rest when it finds its rest in him. Because again, we, we, are, we, are, we are structuring life according to that eternal purpose that God has for us. And so the second thing that we see is that they cast their crowns before the throne. Now this is interesting. And I think this gives us an insight into the nature of worship. Let me say this about the nature of worship. And I think this may be one of the most important things that I've said so far, if I can make that evaluation of what I'm saying. 
that true worship in one sense is nothing more than the people of God ascribing back to God what he has revealed about himself. So that in worship, we're not introducing something new about God, something innovative, something novel. These four living creatures, they are only saying, they are only giving expression of praise about God as to the way he has already revealed himself. And so worship is ascribing back to God that which he has revealed about himself. Stop and think of what a challenge that is in our lives. So that when I'm encountering life and I'm living life on my level and it's this and it's that and why did this happen and why did that happen? Should I not rather ascribe back to God the glory that belongs to him because in his good and wise providence he is orchestrating the things in life? Should I not remember in all things that God has his glory ultimately in in, in mind? And oh, by the way, his glory involves the good of his redeemed humanity? These things are great challenges, but this is where this is where this leads us. And so again, to, to worship God is to ascribe to him that which he has revealed about himself. We're not trying to figure out something new about God. We're not trying to figure out some new, some new uh, uh, feature of his, of his nature. We are ascribing to God that which he has revealed about himself. But there's a second thing I want you to see that constitutes true worship. Did you notice how these four and 20 elders are worshiping God? They, they fall before him and they cast their crowns at his feet. Let me say this. Let me add this. If the worship of God is ascribing to God that which he has revealed about himself, the worship of God also involves giving back to God through ourselves that which he has first given to us. Those crowns are rewards for service that were done for the cause of Christ and for the glory of God. And there was no work of service that any human was able to do unless that ability, that gift, that opportunity was first given to them by God. But now having been given that opportunity and having been rewarded for that opportunity, what is the highest form of their worship? To lay at the feet of God the very gifts that he first gave and the very gifts that were able to be used for his glory here and now. Do you see what's happening? In both cases, there is a reflex. There is a reflex by way of saying back to God what he revealed about himself. And there is a reflex giving back to God which he has first given to us. And let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. I'm going to challenge you here, and I hope I'm not. I'm going to challenge you here. What will you, what will I have to give back to God on that day when it comes to cast crowns before his feet? Will any of us be like that wicked servant who took his master's talent and buried it in the ground? Will any of us be like that? So oftentimes, you've heard me mention gifts, how that Christ gives gifts to every individual he, he saves and converts. And when I look at this congregation, I see a congregation of gifted men and women, boys and girls. And I ask you the question from that, what are you doing with those gifts that Christ has given to you? One day, the opportunity will come before you to set back before God Almighty that which he has worked in you. And as you will declare back to him everything that he is, so you will give back to him everything that he has worked through you. That's worship. You understand? That is worship. And so this idea of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the four and twenty elders before the throne, 
laying their crown, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were and are created. This is a wonderful statement, once again, of God's sovereignty and God's creative omnipotence. He has created all things, and everything was created for His pleasure. That idea of all things being created for the pleasure of God is, is very, very significant. And I want you to see and I want you to understand. I want you to view life. Everything you experience and come in contact with has been created by God for his pleasure. Ought you, ought not you and I use that very thing for his pleasure? Do you know life can be, an, uh, life must be, ought to be, can be an act of continual worship. It's not like, and again, don't get me wrong. I say it myself. I want you to come to worship. I want you to be here on the Lord's day, worshiping the Lord in the Lord's way. There are no two ways about it. But when you leave these doors, your act of worship is not stopped. Everything was created by him and for him and for his pleasure. These hands were created for the pleasure of God. This mind for the pleasure of God. These feet for the pleasure of God. And it's the same with every one of you here. I'm saying to you, God has poured into you certain things. And on this day that we see represented here in Revelation chapter 4, you will have the opportunity to give back that which he's given to you. But with, if I can say it this way, and I hesitate to say this a little bit, but, 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 but as it comes now back to him, through, his hand, through your hands. So it's now, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You have received five talents and you've gained five more. You've received ten and you've gained ten more. And I'm willing to say that if that one who only had one would have only received one more, the Lord Jesus Christ would have said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So you see, now, now if I can, if I can say it this way, do, do you notice the, the difference? If I, can, if, I can, if I can say this, do you, do you notice how the, how the, how the, how the, how, in a sense, how the, how the atmosphere within this little building has, has changed somewhat? There you were laboring with me, trying to stay, saying, okay, well, it, you know, that, the, that, this color means that, and, and that angel means this, and this means that. And then we move from, okay, the description of the glory of God, which is all important, we need it. But now we focus on that which is primary in the passage of Scripture, which is the exaltation and the worship of God Almighty and how that worship impacts you and me and how we can worship God in the very things that He has put within our power and that you were created for His pleasure. And if you were created for His pleasure, why will you not live for His pleasure? Oh, you see how worship frames and gives perspective to life, doesn't it? Well, we live on such a low ebb. Why? Because I'm concerned about this, and it's me this, and it's me that, and you don't know my trouble. And we, and look, don't get me wrong, my heart goes out to individuals who, again, life is, is, is challenging and difficulty. I understand that. But can I, before you and with the word of God in my hand, set before you this thought that all things were created by him and by his will and even for his pleasure they were created. Can I ask you, can I implore you to live in light of that? Can I ask you, can I implore you that if you need, if I can say it this way, if you need help, you have a congregation there that will help you with that. And so here is the worship of God Almighty in heaven. There is much splendor by way of its description. I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, there is much uh, a splendor by way of how we see it described. But oh, when we look at the nature of worship, how much, how greatly informed we are. So remember these, these, these simple things, as I, said as I said before. Number one, I want you to see 
again, this approach to preaching in the book of Revelation. There are, there are a number of details that are important that are there for a reason. The, the details are there because that's God wants us to have those details. No two ways about it. But we can, we, can, we can hold on to the details, but we can get to the primary point that is being made. The primary point in Revelation chapter 4 is not whether or not the four beasts are angels or ministers. The primary point in chapter 4 is that whether they be angels or ministers, God himself is being worshipped and glorified. That's what I want you to see. The second thing I want you to take with you is this. Please remember, all true worship is ascribing back to God that which he has revealed about himself. Any worship counter or contrary or not informed by scripture is faulty worship. Worship is not Worship is not to be kept in the domain of, of my imagination. My imagination has nothing to do with how God is properly worshipped. You look on the pages of Scripture, and every time God is being worshipped, He is being worshipped for that which He has first revealed about Himself. And the and redeemed humanity take their stand with God, oftentimes against the world, and say, no, that's exactly who God is. Thirdly, I want you to see again that whole concept of what casting crowns and, and how different now you will think of casting. So you're not going to think, next time you hear the concept or phrase casting crowns, you're not going to think of some contemporary music group. <laughs> you're you're going to think of you're going to think of your engagement in all of life and on that day giving back to God which he has first given to you. Worship is giving back to God what he has given to you. Worship is ascribing to God what he has revealed about himself. And so let me, let me just say this and finally. If all things were created for the pleasure of God, should not we use all things for God's pleasure? Our Father and our God, bless your word to us, we pray. Give us grace, Lord God, as we walk through this world to keep our minds fixed on heaven where not only is your glory set before us, but also your worship is described for us. Grant to us, Father, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth as our Lord Jesus Christ has instructed. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.